Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. All right, guys, getting into today's episode. All right, and we've got Mr. Mark Novak from Amble Gunsmithing. Wonderful dude, one of my favorite human beings. What a great guy. Mark, how you doing? Just another beautiful day in paradise. Great to be here, guys. I really love it. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me over to uh, to uh, Casa IV88. This is awesome. Nice. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, for those listening, we've got Matt here. Hello. All right, and I'm Eric, and then we have... Uh, Mark. Okay, so if you guys aren't familiar, Mark has an outstanding YouTube channel with tons of great gunsmithing content, and we're not talking just your average gunsmithing either. This guy takes a lot of obscure guns that are very, very few. There's not many of them out there, and he takes these pieces of history, and he preserves them, and he maintains them, and gets them out there and keeps them working, okay, which is really, really cool stuff. So I thought that um, today's podcast, it would be a lot of fun to maybe just touch on like what Mark does. I mean, since he's our guest, we want to make sure that he feels welcome, and we can talk about anything he wants. So, Mark, how long have you been gunsmithing? Well, I built my first gun when I was 11 years old. My father bought me one of those CVA flintlock kits. I'm old enough that I was one of those guys that got turned on to black powder by Daniel Boone. Used to be on it. Oh, yeah. Except I'm old enough to have watched it in network. (laughs) And I was really into that. My father was was a Sabrejet pilot back in the 50s. So I had a father that understood... Um, certain things about how to shoot and just got the fact that the world was not a nice place. Um, so he bought me a kit and I started building a gun. So that was, geez, 45 years ago, 46 years ago. I uh, built my first one and I've been going ever since. I've had some detours along the way, but, you know, I really just think they're all machines to me. Um, and this is all about keeping things from dying a premature death because of a lack of maintenance. And and as we'll talk about here, I'm guessing we now have the technology to spread the gospel of of doing the maintenance. Absolutely, okay. you know I think it's really important. Firearms are a super super interesting engineering perspective because uh, think about okay, you think about all the things from our past that haven't survived into today's world, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason it. It is. It's because people don't associate the value of something, right? Right. So it's really easy to say, oh, this old telephone that you have to crank up. Okay, that's intrinsically cool, right? But it doesn't It doesn't have staying power in terms of why we would need it around today. Right. But an old flintlock musket, it still works. It works as good as the day it was made if it was properly taken care of. And so it's, it's useful. Firearms have a usefulness that far, far exceeds... Any other item, especially going into antiquity. True. And there's two things that I'm that I'm very fond of saying. One, any machine is only new once. And two, specifically about guns, the firearm does not know how old it is. It doesn't know that it's not 1778. We've got a gun in here now we're going to shoot this weekend. From 1778, the gun doesn't know how old it is. If you load it with the correct, ammunition the gun doesn't know it will run if you do your part okay um i'm the opposite of one of those guys that clear coats the patina into his 67 cuda i don't do that i don't clear coat over rust i don't understand that it's rust it's It's decay you know no it's hip Um, that's what they do it's hip yeah Yeah. and and eventually somebody's gonna have to tell me when a lack of maintenance turns into patina and that takes (laughs) off in an entirely different direction absolutely yeah so to help our listeners understand you are a gunsmith by trade you you mainly work or you mainly focus on uh older firearms correct? walnut and steel okay i'm not a big fan of plastic but that doesn't mean because one um, there are a whole lot of people that are very, very good at maintaining the stuff that was made since World War II. There are not a whole lot of people that are good at maintaining the stuff made before it. And I prefer working in walnut and steel. It's just me. Okay. So while I can build you a pretty nice 1911, why? Because while the other 11 guys that I know build a 1911, I'm soldering a rib on your shotgun barrel. Okay, and there, I need you to solder on that rib on that shotgun barrel. Whee! 
and they go running away. Okay, so you know what I mean. So you're, I mean, that, that's admirable. You're preserving the past. You're taking, uh, you're giving new life to firearms that would essentially uh, not be here anymore. They wouldn't be here anymore. And the big one is to stop them from dying in the first place. Awesome. I'm not even. I won't wind one all the way back to new. I'll take one back till it's about 40 years old. But you got to stop it from dying and a lot of people nowadays don't even know what that looks like yeah i mean you brought in some really really cool firearms and i ones that i've never actually seen in person so i i have an appreciation while i don't uh have an opportunity to shoot those all the time mm-hmm. um i mean it's really awesome to be able to hold one like a, a old musket or a black powder uh weapon that i've never had the opportunity to shoot so and I'm, it's gonna be really awesome to do it yeah, and specifically here, um, what what we're talking about, I have a, a reproduction of a 1778 Ferguson screw barrel flintlock. Um, I have a uh, very a contemporary but very nice 62 caliber flintlock handgun um, because Eric hasn't shot a flintlock before. So we're going to go ahead and uh, we're going to go ahead and take that aspect of his life and. We're going to convert that over. Might as well do it on one of the rarest flintlock military arms ever. Awesome. Even the reproductions are rare. Handgun-wise, we have two semi-automatic revolvers, of which I've done Anvil episodes on both. We have a Mativa Unica 6 from the 1980s, and we have a Ferguson uh, from, not a Ferguson, listen to me, a Webley Fosbury. And they're both semi-automatic recoil-operated revolvers. When you pull the trigger, the whole top of the gun comes back, and on its way forward, the cylinder indexes, it stays cocked, and it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I did see that. It yeah. Cool. Uh, we're bringing those, and then we've got a Vetterly that we brought here that had been conserved, and uh, that I brought a couple. I brought uh, Eric's Drilling back, because uh, I'd done an episode on Eric's Drilling, he goes, oh, my trigger guard's messed up, and from across the room without my glasses on, I noticed that the bedding was screwed up. Because it's a drilling, therefore the bedding is screwed up. So we brought a lot of uh, interesting kit. I'm sitting in a room full of equipment that really intrigues me. It's all a matter of of uh, really what, what 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 gets you going there. And for me, it's that older, rarer stuff. I get asked, where do you find all of this hardware? And the answer is it finds me. Because the illusion of competence is intoxicating to my customers. They love that. Oh, my God, this guy might know what he's doing. (laughs) Well, the interesting thing about that, Mark, is that you wind up running into people that, all right, say they bring you some obscure gun that there's only 10 of in the world. Okay. Who knows how to work on that? I mean, who has worked on it? So, see, that's the issue is, you know, there, there might be certain guns where, it's sort of a body of knowledge you have to have access to from right. your experience of working on odd stuff. Right. You may not run into a person that's actually ever even cracked one of these weird old guns. I mean, like that tower gun that we're looking at. Right. That 75 caliber uh, right. Whitworth tower gun that right. I might be getting. I mean, and I'm how sitting many here cracking of those off that, about making extra breech box? How many it. of those things exist, right? So, <laughs> How many show shows are there? Exactly. So there, there's just a certain pedigree of gunsmith in terms of people that are looking for someone to work on something super, super obscure, like like that walking cane gun that we did the video on. Oh, yeah. Really obscure yeah. stuff. Or would even know that if you actually really hung onto it, it might break. And why? <laughs> really, no, it, it might break. You're the only person that, the gentleman that got that back, by the way, was thrilled, hung it on the wall in his gun shop, and everybody gawks at it. And there is a still photograph of you shooting it off the video next to it. Oh, well, that, that <laughs> makes me feel really cool. It, it really. I it mean, makes you, me feel you, like a cool guy. Yeah, you gave it some <laughs> level of some level of, uh, of, of, of notoriety there, I would say. You know, it is so neat. Um, out of all the guns that you brought down, I've I've always really been intrigued by the Matiba and the Fosbury just mm-hmm. because they are such unique actions and mm-hmm. really, really interesting pieces of engineering. But out of all the stuff you brought down, the the man in history that has always intrigued me the most in the British military was Patrick Ferguson. Uh-huh. And it, he was just such a abstract and sort of weird fellow. You know, he had his mistress, Virginia Sal. Which, you know, she was definitely a, a pistol, and he died on King's Mountain. Yeah, uh, let's just say he lived large. Yes, he, he was definitely a colorful fellow. So he was. I have always been intrigued by the Ferguson rifle because of its association 
with Patrick Ferguson, he was very much, you know, your typical British officer. I mean, he yeah. was one hundred and ten percent like by the book. Well, let's consider the fact that he was also a little bit of a politician too, because that Ferguson rifle that he had made cost twenty five times as much as a Brown Bess. So essentially, what he did was to say, "I need a hundred guys. I need to equip them with a hundred weapons that cost twenty five times as much." And essentially said to the British government, in today's money, I'd like you to just kick me about 20 or 25 mil and let me go hack around a little bit. Yeah, I mean, he, he put together an experimental rifle corps consisting of a little over 100 men. Yeah. And it's just really crazy. Even his gunpowder was twice as expensive. Yeah. Everything this guy did was huge. Yeah, I mean, if, if folks that are listening, if you've never heard of Patrick Ferguson, look him up. He, he's got a super colorful history. And, you know, he did get, die on King's Mountain. And it was a mm-hmm. bloody battle. And they wound up shooting him like three times, and he got bayoneted by like twelve yep. different people. He got yep. when they found his body, he had twelve bayonet wounds, three bullet holes, and a wounded arm from early on in the war. He got shot right. in the arm and had like a wounded arm, so he had to fight on horseback with one arm and a sword. But he was and then enough- trying to reload a Ferguson <laughs> rifle with like one arm and everything. But he was enough of a gentleman that when he was in an advanced sniper um, lookout position. And George Washington and Casimir Pulaski rode up. He didn't shoot him, right? So and I know people people recall the uh, the name Fort Pulaski is named after uh-huh. Pulaski. Yeah. So um, that is an interesting story I've always heard about the man that had Washington in his sights was Patrick Ferguson. Mm-hmm. And it's just you know whether or not that true that that story is true or whether or not it's embellished. I like to believe the story it's, because it, it does sort of romanticize. British military valor at the time it was like it, super yeah. offensive to you know harm someone who it wasn't was. a threat to you right it was to pick off a defenseless yeah and you have to look it's a plausible story because all three men were in theater at the same time so it's plausible let's just roll with that I, I, I would you I know? would like to say that the story is probably a little embellished but I'll, I believe it it sound it, make, it <laughs> makes for a very good story it every sea story every army story right that's right that's right. So what's on the horizons? I mean, what, what do you have going on? Uh, new projects? Well, um, there are several things. Upcoming projects that I'm doing um, is part two of Why Did My Gun Explode? And I've been asked for that. So I've been collecting uh, guns that were shot out of headspace, shot with excessive ammo, shot out of battery. I got an 1897 that if about another 16th of an inch of metal had been missing off that gun, I would have worn the bolt in his forehead. Wow. Um, so I want to do the second part of that. I did the first part. It was it was a good episode. What I want to show people is how to recover from that kind of casualty, if you can recover from it, and what the consequences are of attempting to. Um, I have a double barrel seventy five caliber rifle flintlock that um, we've been slowly but surely gathering the uh, footage for as we've been planing down the boards, turning the breech plugs. So that's kind of popping up. I have a 20 millimeter Lottie L39 semi-automatic anti-tank weapon that we're waiting for the paperwork for to uh, re-bring that alive as a destructive device. And that's a that's a Finnish anti-tank. Absolutely, rifle. it's designed to be drug behind your sled. Um, Anzio Arms is making the ammo for it. They use uh, um, pulled 20 millimeter Vulcan projectiles, and uh, that should be pretty crazy. I've actually shot a Lottie. Yeah. Well, so, Chad, when we were up there with FPS Russia filming the Lottie episode, was that that was a Lottie or was that a Solothurn? That was a Solothurn. We shot Solothurn. the Solothurn, and that's a Swiss anti-tank. Yes. Do not try this right. at home unless, of course, you live in the hospital. The, the, well, the Lotties are the ones that have the sleds on the bottom? Or am yes. I thinking, okay, this yeah. one had the sled and then the hook that goes through the flash hider, hook it up behind your horse and drag it. And then the, the skis flip up out of the way, and then you got a set of spikes. Um, and I mean, the thing weighs like a hundred pounds, so it's not gonna, it's not that bad. I mean, and like every single okay. part on that sucker is like milled, I'm, like oh, milled. it is amazing. I just had a gentleman drop two complete Bren guns on me. Um, they were cut, but they were cut very politely, and that's why I agreed to take them on. And we're going to do a two or possibly three part anvil on why I charge five thousand dollars to weld one of those back together again. Well, yeah, it's not, it's not exactly no. like just fixing a, a, a no. an axle or no. something, you know. I mean, they have to be brought back semi-automatic, but they're still they're in campaign boxes with everything 
everything, every last thing, spare barrels, spare mags, cleaning brushes, the whole nine yards. It's like somebody took a snapshot of 1944 and grabbed these things. Wow. Yeah. Pretty that's cool pretty, that's pretty kicking. Um, I have uh, two just straight up hunting rifles I'm building. That's, that's going to take another year. And then anything else that just happens to come my way. I have a 1893 Winchester pump gun in the shop. And now I've been sent in 1895, and I'm going to do an episode that shows all the reasons why they only made the 1893 for three years. And if you sent your 93 back in, you got a brand new 97 back. <laughs> and I don't care if you managed to build sentimental value in your 93 in three years. You didn't get it back. So I want to show all the engineering differences and show the fact that John Browning was evolving as he went. He only worked to sixteenths of an inch. He literally told his brother, take a little bit off here, and they would take a little bit off there, and it would work. The guy was a god sent here by the space aliens to show us a better <laughs> way. So between John Moses Browning and Nikola Tesla, yeah, now we're talking. Oh, yeah, 100%. Right? I've always been fascinated by the 1895 Winchester, mm-hmm. and the gun that I love so much is the 762 by 54 rimmed musket that they Ooh. did for the Russians. Yes. The big stripper clip notch on the top. Yo. Uh, that's one gun that well, I've you're always talking, You're talking rifle, not talking shotguns. Right, I know you're talking about the shotgun, right. but when you said 1895 Winchester, I'm thinking of the you know the muskets. The so I've, I've got a... For a gentleman down in Louisiana, I've got a, he had a barrel and a receiver for one of those 1895 Winchesters. The Charger Bridge, long gone. The barrel had been lopped off. And then he went and found a stock off another gun. And then all the other parts that were missing off the gun came off a Japanese Winchester copy. So I integrated that all into one great big pile of Jap Chester. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, whatever works. Yeah, so. but now we've got a 1895 carbine in 762 by 54 R, and that thing roars. Yeah. Half the fuel load burns out in front of the gun. It's awesome. Big old fireball. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to ask a few questions that might put you slightly outside of, of the realm of this Anywhere you want to go. Okay. All right, so let's go. You mentioned that you don't really like working on as much of the modern stuff. All right, right so in the military's current MTO, right, like what current issue military weapons? Mm-hmm. What do you think is the best weapon system that the military feels today, currently? Ah, uh, the two forty nine is pretty nice. Um, really? Yeah, I think so. Um, honestly, seriously, honestly, it's all garbage. However, the Marines are still carrying 1911s. Got to give them an up arrow. It's all garbage, and here's why I think it's all garbage. I think the U.S. military is planning for a world in which they do not automatically have air superiority over every combat zone. Now, remember now, this is a Navy guy that was on a submarine talking to an Army guy that was on the ground. So I'm not really familiar with that. I don't work on a lot of it. I really don't. Um, so when I said the 249, you winced. Okay. Um, what else? Uh, I don't know. I, I would just tell you this. The U.S. military has had to relearn this lesson over and over again. Big, dumb, and slow wins the battle. So in a battle space where they're using B-52s for close air support, i got to wonder if the whole world is upside down. That's right. Yeah, I, I don't I mean, know if I was even prepared to answer the question, and I'm sorry. No, that's okay. So, so what's your thoughts on the saw, Matt? Uh, I'm not a huge fan. Um, you know, it's it's very very unreliable, and I know there's a lot of guys on, in combat using it right now, and they swear by it. Um, in my experience, and we we did use them. I'm more of a 240 Bravo kind of guy. Okay. Um, that I mean, that I'll have that thing singing all day. It's much more reliable. Um, of course, it's a, it's a higher caliber. I know Eric is a is a Ma Deuce fifty guy, and he's a mortar guy. <laughs> that too. That's bigger, um, slower. <laughs> mortars, <laughs> yeah, mortar, mortars will do the job just as good. Uh, now, in, in that aspect, I mean, if you're get, in today's battlefield, uh, I think if you're going to bring mortars to the battlefield, you're going to bring sixties and eighty ones. I do think the the one twenties are are a little dated. They have a lot. Uh, they have a ton more restrictions on airspace meaning you have to clear a lot more airspace to use them and the sons of bitches are just heavy to move yeah, yeah i mean difficult si- to feel well okay 60s and 81s will do it so while you were saying that i thought about something what is a giraffe 
A giraffe is a horse that was designed by a military procurement committee. <laughs> I can see that. Okay. Big neck, little neck, yellow, no brown, no black, little ears, <laughs> tall ears, horns, who knows? All right, and you wind up with, ah, right? Why don't they just go back and remake the A-10? We learned that. It's big. It's dumb. It's slow. It's got a huge gun. It tears up anything it gets near. Everybody except the people that actually spend the money want it. Right. Okay, so... You know, right. wind me back to the to my nuclear submarine days. It's the same thing. We needed the Virginia. We wound up with the Seawolf. I mean, it's it's all just a matter of bigger, better, faster. Who's lining what pockets? That's what it comes down to. Is who you st- you see a lot of useless stuff come out of the procurement process. So um, you know, a lot of guys of guys are shooting rattle battle with an M- with a with a with a AR fifteen, AR fourteen, whatever we're calling them nowadays. Um, they're using a Benelli Nova uh, for a rifle and for a handgun. They're using a some kind of 2011 or some sort of gun that you pay $4,000 for it and doesn't run worth the crap till you pay me another 500 to actually make it work. <laughs> I run Rattle Battle with an 1897, a Grand, and a 1911. Now, I'm laughing my butt off so hard I can barely breathe while I'm doing it, but I'm having fun. And I'm having fun with equipment that will actually poke man-sized holes and stuff. You know, the, there there seems to be this this certainly discernible disconnect mm-hmm. from one generation of people that are used to a certain, you know, level gear and type of gear. You know, you're always going to have, like, the old-school Vietnam guys are like, the M14 is the king, and screw the AR-15, screw the M16, it sucked. Right. And then you got, like, the people within our generation that, you know, we used the M16, and but we were able to use a much more refined version that's gone through, you know, plenty of, of improvements. And right. the M4 is a very proven gun, you know. Right. And um, yeah, there's always a disconnect there. And, and it's just like the World War II guys, you know what I mean? They, yeah. they probably came back from the war and they're like, yeah, give me a Grand and a 1911 and I can rule the world. Because they did. I mean, they went over there and they did their job and they, they fought a very bloody war. With those tools, and you know, if you're going toe to toe back during World War II with the Nazis, right? Right. And you were armed with an M1 Grand. Yeah. You had a pretty dang great gun, man. I mean, you had a great. You got gun. a guy with a turnbolt five shot bolt hunting rifle, basically. Yes. And you've got a semi-automatic M1 right. Grand shooting black tip right. that you can kill Nazis through trees. Yep. I mean, right. come on. And that's. So, you know, again, yes, I'm not bagging on the gear that our guys have because they have the training to keep it running. All right. But at the end of the day, what's the average? I mean, I I don't know what an M4 that comes back from the hot and sandy looks like. But I would be willing to bet you that they just throw it in a garbage can and start over again. I don't know what that environment is. I've never been there. Yeah. I can tell you what happens to anything that's made out of metal on a submarine eventually turns green. Okay, that's my experience of it. All right, so right, so, so let's um let's change gears a little bit. Click. All right, we are drinking <laughs> as we are making this podcast. Just we are drinking bit. the wonderful. Oh yeah, Balvini Caribbean oh. Cast, fourteen year old Scotch, mm-hmm. and I yes. am having Old Scout. Old Scott, do you need to need me to refresh your glass? I would. Thank All right, you, let's sir. See, let's he see needs the microphone. We'll pick. He up. needs a refreshment of his libation. All right, here we go. Now, while he's refilling Mark's glass, I will tell you a little bit about this army procurement process and some of the stupidity that comes out of it. While we were deployed, we had the lovely. Uh, we had the lovely experience of getting the CLP wipes in a can. Um, looks like a baby wipe dispenser. And then it came down the pipeline of the procurement process that they're going to give us these dry... We're going we're gonna to stop using the CLP wipes and we're going to use these dry carbon uh, pouches. So it's a dry lube that goes inside graphite? of graphite 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 so we switched over to graphite and this was somehow somebody was getting paid for this and we started using the graphite and then halfway through the rotation they said well we're not using graphite anymore we're going back to clp uh wipes so then now we have all these different clean parts and 
stuff floating around. You have some guys using the the carbon, some guys using the CLP, and And it it was a mess. It was a real mess if you put that freaking graphite on after you had CLP'd it. Yes. And then you had... We never had any major stoppages. What I will tell you is that it wasn't uh, the best experience, uh, especially with a a 240. Uh, There was some stoppages that I experienced Mm -hmm. with the 240, uh, one of them being at a very uh, detrimental point where uh, it (laughs) was pretty bad. So I had to actually switch to my M4 uh, and then kind of get the gun back up. But um, it just it just didn't work the way that it was uh, it was advertised. I always wow. just felt like the saws, you know, from being stamped versus the mill construction of a two forty. Like two forty right. is just a far superior gun to the two four nine. Well, 100%. you just have a lot. You have a lot more gas to propel it. I mean, it was just much more reliable. Yeah. Um, like you didn't. Re- I mean, yes, they're both open bolt, but I mean, to me, the the stoppage rate on a on a two four nine was significantly higher. Oh gosh, yeah. Yeah, they they never really were known for their reliability. Yeah. I would give you a hundred dollars if I could make it through a whole belt. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. Okay, so so let's backtrack a little Boy, bit. Boy, I feel stupid. We, we all right. So so we asked Mark about modern stuff. So yeah. let's backtrack way way back. Okay. What what to you is the most considerable and important? All right, now, and I want everyone to just provide an answer. I, I have my answer. I think okay. you have you probably your answer, and I know Mark has a genius answer. That's which why I'm asking this question. Genius level. What sure. is the most important technological development that makes us have the guns we have today? Like the self-contained what, what, cartridge. What got us where we where we are today? The self-contained cartridge. I was going to say the primer, but yeah, yeah but the, it all that, that it would, all came together yeah, the in mis- the self-contained cartridge, and yeah. that only took wow twenty years. I mean, the modern primer. Yeah, the modern primer fulminates percussion ignition. Yes, that was the single, the fact, and also the realization that a brass cartridge will obtruate. It will blow up like a balloon, seal the rear end, and then and then unswell and allow you to extract it. Okay, and once they figured out how to delay that extraction sequence, again, <clears throat> Moses Browning. Anyway, once they figured out how to do that, then it was Katie bar the door. It was the self-contained cartridge followed by smokeless powder. Yep. Followed by black powder does not have enough energy to get a projectile of any weight moving much faster than about fourteen to fifteen hundred feet per second. So if you can't go fast, you gotta go big. So look at naval gunnery before I'm gonna call eighteen ninety two the year smokeless came out. Naval guns were short and huge, and the moment the ability to continuously accelerate the projectile down the barrel came in. Now the guns got real small in diameter and really long. Sure, so look at naval gunnery. Yeah, there's just and, only so much you can do with black powder. There, there kind of becomes right. like a point of no return right. where there's no you could you fill could it all the way up. Exponential amount of right. black powder, and you're never going to get any more velocity. Get it, it, it only deflagrates so fast. Right, there's only so much energy. So I would say the self-contained cartridge followed by right uh, followed by smokeless powder. So the eight label. Yeah, I mean, there it is. Smokeless powder. See, the thing is, everybody bags on a French man. They've been there first and fastest with a lot of stuff. From from a military perspective, on smokeless powder, though, yeah, not only is it important for the velocity gains that you get, but also for Project- revealing your position. Well, trajectory you know, if, and flash. If, if you've yes. got a group of guys in a wood line firing mm-hmm. muskets, and there's this huge cloud of smoke, well, now right. the enemy all of a sudden knows where everybody is. Right. But with smokeless. It completely changed the game. Totally, because a guy could be hiding in the wood line. You have no idea where he is, well, and you just got back- hit with a high speed rifle bullet from a long distance. Well, it also no opened idea. up the ranges dramatically. I can I can consistently hit a, a six foot diameter target at a thousand yards with my trapdoor Springfield f- uh, firing uh, five hundred and thirty five grain snowers. However, there's twenty three feet mid-course trajectory on that round and i had better know where that target is within about 20 yards here or there or i will miss it in front of it or behind it with a grand i can lay back there all day and i'm off by 10 or 12 inches so that velocity gave you the ability to get long four caliber projectiles that had all kinds of freaking sectional density that would hold their velocity downrange better, yep. shoot flatter, and all of a sudden combat range went from 100 yards to 1,000. Well, and not, not only that, but there's also that window 
for your battle site setting right. was much wider range. So much. Especially like in the 6.5 Swedish. Right. If I'm running the lowest sight setting on a 6.5 Swedish, that gun knees. shoots so flat yeah. that I can get out to 400 and probably hit within a 12-inch circle of where I'm looking right. at, even all the way out to 400 right. yards. So it actually increased the standoff distance of the right. battle site by right. having a smokeless powder round. So consequently, well. le- lethality went up by several orders of magnitude, and oh, yeah. you have the first half of the Great War. Yep. <laughs> which is the lethality was yeah so what do you think stunning. matt Gr- greatest achievement to, that brought us where we are today in gun in the gun world um go i think you guys are talking down to the macro level about innovations as far as r- bullets and rounds right. and powder i my brain automatically sl- snapped to like the gatling gun just because it's a, of the mechanical nature of it volume and, and the way that it's affected the most like devast- a volume firing gun like right because i'm thinking like area denial and i mean even today right. the most feared gun on the battlefield is not the ma deuce while it's the most effective it's like the m134 like a m134 rolls yeah. onto the battle space yeah. you're you're Rrr. done yeah oh, you're, yeah or you're, a C-130, you're done yeah you right. know. yeah how, how do you hit women and children and a, yeah oh. an a10 is, <laughs> you hear an a10 over it, you're i mean and then I'm, you hear yeah like, man just it's, all that it, it sounds like snap caps going off have you ever right. heard it it's just like you you hear and then like literally five seconds later it's just snap caps small <laughs> small factoid mm-hmm. the brass does not come out the back end of a a10 they could not figure out how to get rid of that many cases that fast so the brass <laughs> comes out of the gun and is put in the rear of the magazine so the magazine depletes from the rear forward and when you run out you wind up with a mag full of empties nice that's actually they don't even smart. come out of the airplane yeah they couldn't figure it I got you have one. I've got another one. Well, well, no. I think I think that you and I actually wound up reaching yeah. the same conclusion. But I got I, another one. I was going to say the metallic, prim- like the contained yeah. primer, the crystal controlled AM radio, the ability to communicate on the battlefield. Yeah, yeah. And the crystal meant you didn't have to tune it. You snapped into a channel. Everybody's on channel three. They got them great big walkie talkies, which was basically an enormous battery with a microphone on it. And the, the the ability to communicate I mean, also dude, changed warfare. Think about think Absolutely. about s- stuff like sonar. Oh, yeah. I mean, sonar it was a huge breakthrough. And then look at the Germans and using the Enigma device yes. to code messages, like right. message coding and and sonar and radar right. and all of those things. Like so, all those of were these innovations, new things, you know, all of these innovations were were paid for by the fact that we were. Shooting each other up. Let's think about the 1960s very briefly. We were fighting a war that was costing a billion 1960s dollars while we were engaged in the world's humankind's largest infrastructure improvement, the Eisenhower Interstate System, while we started up Johnson's Great uh, great Society program. And in the middle of all that, we went to the freaking moon and paid cash for all of it. <laughs> And all of that money got us where we are now. It got us to... This cell phone is five times the computing power of the Apollo 12 spacecraft ad. That's crazy. You know, it's really random to think about it. Yeah. It really is because you think about the prosperity of the 50s, right? Yeah. You know... Microwave ovens and you know, the the lady staying at home in a polka dot dress. Hey, how how did school uh, go today, Rusty? With mine, Dad. My mother would tell and, you know, you that there's they dinner didn't ready that and time. there's a car in every driveway and everybody's every got woman their was house. named Karen. <laughs> oh, Karen! No, that was, the, that was the dawn of the Karen. It was the dawn of the Karen. <laughs> in a world of Susan, yes. be a Karen, right? <laughs> She's no longer just. Jane. <laughs> okay, so you, you used the you used the name Rusty. I was going to say Timmy because well, Timmy's synonymous yeah, like this, with like this, this epic yes. right time of prosperity. Yeah. Yes. That that really the the culmination of that was the space program. It really was. It well, really was. But well, the point was is that we did all four of those things at the same time, and all the technology in that two decades. Out. Yeah, and all that <laughs> right, and all that money that got spent. So what did what did World War One give you? Improvements in weapon systems. World War Two gave you metallurgy. So just humor me here for a second. It took a million years to get from fire to the steam engine. It took 150 years to get from the steam engine to standing on a moon. So all of that was improvements in metallurgy. You went from engines that ran below atmospheric pressure. Watt's steam engine for pumping out mines ran below atmospheric pressure. 
So he put the steam in in order to condense it and let the atmosphere push the piston down. So then by the time you started burning fuel inside, you're looking at the temperature rise. And in that 40-year time span between about 1890 and 1930, the metallurgists were blowing their brains out, trying to keep up. And then Von Ohain and Whittle just declare the piston part of the internal combustion engine uh, redundant and just burn the fuel. And then the Germans decided that all the rotating crap was redundant and just burn the fuel and made a rocket. So well, we I, went from engines that ran at 200 degrees Fahrenheit to 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit in 60 years. And that was that those Im- improvements in metallurgy. In I mean, of, yeah. I think, like, it, it's, it's interesting. I'll switch gears just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. If John Browning... All right, here's a great question. If John Browning were alive today... Yes. Would he use polymer in his gun designs? Hmm. Yes, because it is a superior material as far as corrosion resistance is concerned. I'm telling you, if Acroglass was available in the 1650s, it would be a traditional firearms material. What what <laughs> would, what areas in firearms technology would John Browning utilize using polymer? I think we do exactly with it what we're doing with it now. He just makes stocks out of it because it reduces weight. Do you think he really wanted to make a gun that weighed 14 pounds? No. And every time we tried to make one that was lighter, it didn't really work out. Polymers are here because they are better. I hate to say that. You say modern cars have no soul. They're better. They're just better. Um, yeah, I think he would have used polymer, and I think he would have used it all over the place. And he would have, I'll tell you what he would have loved to have had, was access to the materials we have, the metals. Oh, oh man, oh. aluminum? Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> not even that, but just not like 904L. Like right. just having like that access to the formula for 904L would you be You go inside amazing. a John Browning engineered gun, you could make a 1911 weigh a lot less because he didn't have to have all the, met- all the steel in it he had. You know what makes the you know what makes the 1911 a brilliant handgun? There are almost no parts in it. I mean, it's almost Russian in its simplicity. Everything does exactly what it's supposed to do, no more and no less. Well, actually, the Russians are simplistic because, like, if you look at the Tokarev, they just copied a lot of the components from Browning. Anyway. Everybody copied everything. And if you see a weird gun around the 1890s, it's because they were trying to go around one of Hiram Maxim's patents. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> okay. Well, the Russians have always copied everything. And they do it well, too. They, they do. The, they the, use the, the term. It's a bad thing. Because really, honestly, seriously, if i got to take one shotgun with me, it's going to be an 870. And if i got to take one rifle with me, it's going to be an AK-47. Yeah. That's my opinion. Honest to God. And if i got to take one handgun with me, it's probably going to be a twenty two revolver. Hmm. So do you think Mikhail Kalishnikov, when you look at his contributions to the yes. AK-47, do you think that... His contributions were just him being in the right place at the right time and just thinking of the right idea. Like, there's a lot of people that go, oh, well, he stole designs from the Sturmgewehr or whatever. Or do you think he was just brilliant enough to think, hey, I'm going to make one basic machine, one piston, you know, this moving thing. He went for every single thing he did, both ends of everything he did does something. He went simple. It's got to be maintained on the step by someone that can't read. Under yeah. incoming fire, you got to be able to give a conscript twenty yeah. minutes of, of and I got news for you, man. When, and 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 people go, well, you were in a submarine, you never had bullets fired at you. Really, the ocean was trying to kill me twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Okay, you need things that are simple and easy to operate. And every weapon. So now we're I'm, I'm coming back around to your initial question. All these weapon systems suck because they're too complicated. And you go right back to Mikhail Kalashnikov, and he got it right. That's my opinion. So I vote him for best gun. Um, a lot of people are going to yell at me. 1911 is the best handgun, in my opinion. Um, however, the ammunition weighs a lot. And the reason why I want a 22 revolver is because handgun is the last thing you go to. And I want ammunition that doesn't weigh much. I can carry a lot of it. And it has all the basic qualifications of money. It's small for its value. It uh, it's easily subdividable. It's very recognizable. And you know, six rounds of twenty two will buy me a loaf of bread and a pinch. That's a good point. That's where I'm at. You know, everybody thinks when the boog comes, they're going to load you know all five thousand rounds and all thirty weapons they have into their vehicle. It gets twelve miles to the gallon, and they're going to go out there and kick some butt. <laughs> no. So anyway, that's where I'm at. 
I'm rambling. No, you're not. But I'm trying to come back around with your self-contained cartridge, smokeless powder, and yeah, and then guys that kept it simple. You want a simple gun? SVT40. Yeah, they're cool, and they yeah. have fluted chamber, which is really oh yeah. Cool. Yeah, fluid chamber, chromium you know, line. I look at it. And we tried to I, make Aftermath automatic. Bad idea. World War II principles, the only thing, the things that I consider is, yeah. okay, did the Finns use it? Is yeah. the answer yes? Yes. All right, then yes. it's probably good. If the Finns or the U.S. <laughs> Marines could keep it alive, that's what you want. Yeah. I mean, that that's honestly the question. If Finland used it in World War II, right. it's probably good. You're probably good. Or the base technology within that gun platform is something that is certainly good. Right. And there's a lot of examples of that in this room. There are. Well, the Russian mindset during that time was that everything had a purpose. And if it right. didn't have a purpose... Why it, is it here? Yeah, you didn't Why need have it. we burned fuel and rubber and trucks to drag it all the way up to the front line? Why have we done that? Right. So everything has a purpose and <clears throat> you know, everything has to have a payoff. You, you don't do anything without it giving you a service or, or providing a purpose for it. And... I think I shared that story with uh, you, Eric, about how the American space program spent over a million dollars to to create this Fisher space pin. Right. And, it was a, uh, and the astronauts flew up to the space station. And they were they were just showing up. They're like, "Oh man, look at this amazing pin! It costs us a million dollars in development, and it works in space." And the yeah. Russians just pull a pencil out and go. Why don't you use pencil? Now, I will tell you. Now, now. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> and the like pencil's so wider. Yeah. yeah. It costs less to get up there. It was already in development. It was practically free. And these guys are just looking at these American astronauts like, oh, what do you, what, you yeah. spend a million dollars? There is, there, is, there is more to that. Um, there is more to that. But that, that's just the, the story that goes the around. Pencil, yeah. You make very conductive graphite dust. And they actually had issues with that in their spacecraft. However, um, yeah, we were using such high-tech stuff as computers to stabilize our spacecraft. Right. All of theirs are spun like a bullet. So right. if you see any pictures of a Soviet spacecraft, it's going around very slowly because it's actually being spin-stabilized. And our, ours, they got up there first. They they did. And, well, that and, like I said, everything they did was yeah. had a purpose. But everything they did had a purpose, yes. And so their there was overall no, value for the individual human life was considerably significantly less. less significantly less, we, I agree. <laughs> what we assigned to the value of human life. Right, yes, they right. Are, yes. They were completely willing to kill anybody they needed to kill, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm... <laughs> And you notice they've chosen to sit this most recent little kerfuffle out. So anyway, that's that's who they are. I never, yeah. I will tell you what, having been privy to how they played the submarine game, they are very worthy adversaries. So let's talk a little bit about that, Mark. Duh. If we can, your submarine service. <laughs> so I know you and I offline have, have, have spoken on many accounts about some of the things that you, you know, the the lifestyle of living in a submarine. I mean, earlier you mentioned everything around you is trying to kill you. The ocean is is deadly. If that vessel fails, there's many life support systems that have to maintain you. Uh You have what? Oxygen scrubbers, water purification, temperature control. I mean, all these things, right? Yeah, and there's 3,000-pound hydraulics, uh, 4,500-pound air. You have steam. Oh, let's not forget that. You know, over hundred million watt reactor that's just happened to be sitting in there, and right there's all, everything. Yeah, it's it's uh, just to make oxygen. You electrolytically decompose water into hydrogen and oxygen inside a machine that runs at very high pressure. And if the oxygen and hydrogen recombine, you will understand why submariners call that thing the bomb. There's everything there. There was a battery in that ship. That is the size of the room we're sitting in. There's four of them. Um, there's just, it's a very, very intense uh, environment that does not suffer fools gladly. You didn't walk around going, oh my God, I'm going to die. You walk around going, thank God there's a hundred other guys on his boat that have a clue. Because actually, I was more in danger driving to the base than I was going to see on the boat. <laughs> That's a very that, that, that's a good way to you know, look at it's it. It's like going it's like going in country with twenty five or thirty guys in a squad that all get it. You're safer there. 
That's true. Right, but there's no dumb luck in that boat. If if all right, if, oh, if, no. I, if I'm an infantryman and I forget to clean my rifle and I have a minor stoppage and I just need to clear the stoppage and get my right. gun back in order, that's one thing. But out there, the training disposition, uh, you must be on your A game because all everyone time. is relying on a well-oiled machine. So there is a different working. There is an ethos down there that does not exist up in the civilian world. Where if you make a mistake, the first thing you do is you tell every single person within earshot that you did it. Now, if you do that up here, there are societal consequences. You'll get, you know, you'll get screwed over. But down there, if you make a mistake, the first thing you do is you tell the whole boat you made the mistake. Then the other 99 guys cover for you, and it doesn't matter. You just move on. It happens. But you don't you do not do something wrong and not tell somebody you did it wrong, or it will kill all of you. And there, there are no secrets in the submarine all no. the way down to flatulence. No, there You'll are not. You smell none. the guy's fart all the way in the front of the submarine. Well, no, the first time you fart, we have to smell it for three months. No, <laughs> oh, man. The, um, I will tell you this. There's over 600 tons of AC. In a nuclear submarine. Wow, I thought, there's a lot I thought of air conditioning in there. Was good. There's an activated charcoal bed. There's a burner that burns all the methane. So when you fart, it just turns it back into water vapor. Um, and there is a scrubber that scrubs all the CO2 out of the air. But you have to have the burner in order to uh, the the battery gives off hydrogen. So there's all kinds of stuff. And at the end of the day, you come back off a, a tour, and your wife will not allow you in the house because you smell. Like, we called it metal oxide breath. <laughs> wow. You now, what about the sleeping quarters? Very tight Very small, um, because you're, a submarine is a blivet. It's nine pounds of crap stuffed into a two-pound box. Okay? It's not a very big thing. So, your sleeping container is called your rack. It's about two and a half feet wide. It's just a little over six feet long, and it's about 18 inches tall, and that's where you get to sleep. So crew comfort is definitely not the priority. Not, no, the boat, yeah, pretty much it's the weapons and the engines pushing it. And then the people are just kind of a vestigial, we'll squeeze them in where we can. Now what about like, uh, you know, food preparation, chow hall, I mean, any decent area to move around, like well, a rec room or anything like that? The in t- cruise mess is the size of this room. So this is about... 100 a, men? It's just, no, you're eating shifts. So this is about an 18 by 18 room, if I'm not too far off. This is the this is the largest open space inside the submarine, except for engine room upper level, where you could see 30 or 40 feet, but you couldn't walk that far. So, yeah, there's not a lot of open space. Uh, everything's done in shifts. Um, you don't have enough bunks on that bed to sleep 100 guys. So the junior guys... You'll have three guys for two racks. So whenever you come off watch, you go to sleep in a bed that's had somebody in it 10 minutes ago. It's called hot racking. You never get in a bunk with cool sheets in it. That's, <laughs> that's called hot racking. Yeah. That's uh-huh, what the junior so guys... they actually have shifts for even who gets to sleep. Well, just... Where you sleep and when and your racks are assigned. And, yeah, and... Well, they've got to have somebody up to like check on systems. Well, there's sure a third of the are... crew up at all times. The boat runs on three... Um, three watches so you'll go six on 12 off six on 12 off so you're always getting up to a different meal so you get up to breakfast mid rats dinner lunch breakfast mid rats dinner lunch you're going backwards so you're going backwards now i did hear that it's heinous but it is what we did what now the I did hear one of the benefits of being on a on as part of the silent service, as oh, they yes. say, is uh, the chow. They said the chow is amazing. The chow is good for the first seven to eight days, but the problem is <laughs> the problem is is that after seven to eight days, the first thing that happens is the cow dies. Oh, so you boy. run out of milk, and then they put this container. You you bring about maybe fifteen or twenty of these great big cardboard boxes of milk. We'll drink all that. Hunter guys will drink that in about 10 days. And then they put a box of plastic milk in there and it stays there for the rest of the patrol because it's heinous. It's ugly. It's terrible. It just disgusting. Like powdered milk. Raw, yeah, it ain't like powdered milk. It is. Powdered milk, we call it plastic milk. And then, of course, you'll run out of vegetables and eggs and then you're down to eating meat and potatoes and butter and bread. Mm. So you eat a lot of bread, a lot of meat, and a lot of potatoes, and you look like a freaking termite. <laughs> how is uh, how is waste handled? I guess that gets pumped out to sea. That just gets blown overboard. You get out to the beach and you swim. You don't worry about drinking fish piss. I wouldn't worry about it. It's just 
Now, here's the right, problem. Do they, they just jettison the waste, solid waste? Yeah, we waste just, pump, just pump it out in the ocean. There's nothing in it. It's gray water. It's bath water. It's, um, it's crap, but, you know, everything in the sea is crap. And, and there's a couple hundred million quadrillion gallons of water out in the ocean. I don't think anybody noticed. Oh, so, yeah. I'm sure So you put gonna... everything in a tank, and then when you're ready to blow the tank, you push, you, you either blow it overboard with air or you push it overboard with the pump. You pump the sanitary tank, and then everything drains into that, and it goes over. So um, when, when it comes to, you look at um, aircraft, right? And right. you look at the fact that there are multiple redundancies for every system, usually with aircraft. Submarines? Two. Two redundancies? Two redundancies. There's, and things are only redundant if they both work. So there's a 100% up requirement. If you got a piece of gear down because it's broke, you are limiting the ship's ability to perform combat. Because I don't care how big your budget is, I don't care how big your optar is, I don't care how many spare parts you think you got, you only got so much room, 1,400 miles out in the middle of damn Atlantic. So You have so limited options because of where you are and what you're doing. If a pump or component goes out, right. you switch to the backup and then you repair the broken component. Right. You repair and then that way it. you get it back up to full right. redundancy. And I'm, I'm guarding my words here because I don't know what is still guarded and what isn't but you have an equipment rotation that guarantees that the entire boat's going to wear out at the same time as opposed to say run one thing till it dies then switch over to the other one and repair the other one when you get around to it you run this one that one this one that one this one that one this one and if one of them breaks if one of them breaks you have got both eyes looking at the other one now you do a lot of preventative maintenance you got got 100 guys on that boat, and all we did was maintenance and clean and stand watch. And I'm telling you what, it is 100-hour weeks. And, uh, and I would the probably imagine lots of, of, uh, lots of drills, too, while you're out. Well, you got to do drills because... The, well, the problem in the submarine is, is that three-quarters of the drills, once they begin, they're actual casualties. Because you're 400 feet underwater, and you've just shut the reactor down for a drill. Well, that kind of sucks. So now you got to go deal with that. So it ceases to be a drill... But you got to do it because you got to know how to get a fire hose rigged from from two different places in the boat to anywhere in the boat in under two minutes, or you'll die because there'll be no more oxygen. Well, think about <laughs> Chernobyl. That started from a drill. No, Chernobyl started from a bunch of being people being stupid. <laughs> yeah, right, but the whole idea is it was supposed to be a drill at first. Well, a yeah, test. they were being stupid. They didn't understand what happens when you add that much positive reactivity to a reactor that's that poorly designed, and it blew the entire top off the damn thing and flipped it over upside down. Well, I think that Hoorah. it's also it's also an exercise in just because you can try to make something cheaper doesn't mean you should. No. Because no. those reactors fat had some clear faults in them. Mm-hmm. It was because the Russians You're not allowed out. to build an RBMK reactor. And I'm going to tell you, I think I got that acronym right, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm drinking a little bit of scotch here. But you're not even allowed to build one of those things outside of the old communist block. You're not even allowed to build them because they're not safe. See, now you look, we did melt Three Mile Island down. It melted. And it's still inside of its containment building. Primary containment held. They didn't even need secondary containment. Look up the elephant's foot, and you'll see what I'm yeah. talking about. Because the fuel meat from that reactor melted out the bottom of the pressure vessel through the secondary containment and into the freaking local groundwater. And it is the most radioactive place in the universe, and it's on this planet. Yep. We, Dude, they, that place makes the sun look like it's popping. They, they kind of, they kind of uh, created a tiny sun in a, in a sense. They built a sarcophagus around it, but the concern is no. They built a sarcophagus around the top, uh, around the main building, which is still contaminated as so, hell. So, do you think the groundwater fuel, in Chernobyl oh, yeah. is is Not contaminated? Yet. Not yet, but I'll tell you what: the main fuel load at Three Mile Island is still inside the primary containment and is going nowhere. The main fuel load at Fukushima is still inside its primary containment and is going nowhere. The main fuel load at Chernobyl is 75 feet under the secondary containment and melting its way towards the center of the earth. Leave it to the Russians. Yes. Setting records. You mentioned uh, Fukushima. Yes. I know that there was a lot of concern about radioactive material being jettisoned into the Again, do the the dilution numbers. Do the dilution numbers. The ocean doesn't know what's there. It doesn't. It's not there. It's it's it's. If you actually do the numbers, no. 
No, and you know what? You know what the real thing was they did? They chose to t- remove decay heat from those reactors by using seawater. And therefore, they condemned them to death by putting chlorides inside the, the primary. And then they let that water go back out into the ocean. It doesn't matter. It went away. It's gone. You won't find it. And they prevented those cores from melting out of their containment vessels. The Japanese did a jam-up job of handling that. Jam up. I do think that it's amazing that they had, you know, literal prisoners from jail that were volunteering to go and handle that, knowing very well that they could die. Right. And many of them did. And yet, you don't hear Japan swearing it off because it's the only, there's only two kinds of energy available on this planet, solar and nuclear. All right. So we are getting relatively close on time. But one thing I want to mention. Yes. All right. So in light of this conversation that has occurred here. Yes. Okay. Nuclear, okay, nuclear energy. Yes. What do you think is the most significant and important technological advance that has occurred in relation to nuclear energy? Like, are we are we better as a, as a planet because of its existence, or is are we doomed? Well, we're much better. Um, you have to look at it in terms of the fuel that they're burning is already here. It's already in the crust of the earth. We are not consuming stored sunlight, which is what dinosaur whiz is. Okay, dinosaur poop and dinosaur whiz is coal and oil, right? Okay, we only have so much of that, it's stored sunlight. Nuclear produces a a lot of power for what it consumes to produce it. You burn a lot of oil building a nuclear power plant. Now, the biggest advance, I would say, we got to do it the way the French do it. The French took one reactor and did it several hundred times. We took several hundred designs and did them once. So what the French have is what the nuclear Navy has, is a very large pool of qualified talent that all know the same thing. Okay? I, I, and, and, it's, and they have initiative, but the deal is this. You get, they move around. We moved around in the military in order to keep the knowledge pool from stagnating, right? Same deal there. They move people around, and everybody knows the same thing. If we did that here in the United States... We would be much, much better off. I really believe that. Right? I mean, that's what I see it as. Because it's an energy source that's available on the planet. We might as well use it because we're going to run out of stored sunlight one of these days. All right? I agree. I yeah. Agree. I just, it's, I have an opinion on it. I taught mechatronics in high school. Okay. So, <clears throat> what time are we currently at? In terms of nuclear holocaust. What time is it? Oh, we backed away. Most of the stuff that the Russians had, maintaining a nuclear weapon, is not a five-second evolution. It requires a very large infrastructure that fell apart. They may have put it back together again, but they had no way. They didn't. Now, if World War III is going to start, it's going to be India and China. All right, so out of all the major superpowers on the planet right now, yeah. who is nuclear capable right now in terms of delivering a devastating payload to a major developed country? Who Us, is China, the Soviet Union, former Soviet Socialist Republics, they can still deliver credible. Uh, the Indians, the Pakistanis, the Israelis. France, Great Britain can. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people that can pull the trigger uh, countries with the political will to do it, China. I think you would, even though nuclear weapons are, are on the table, <laughs> I think with the advancements in small arms technology, you can actually achieve a lot more by you know small unit tactics. I mean, well, there's, there's you can insert teams that will do much more damage than a nuclear well, a nuclear blast. You're right, and consider this: um, you can put a 10 to 15 kiloton nuclear weapon through your front door from 1,100 miles away, and they're using B-52s for close air support. Yeah. Holy crap, yeah. we're right back to that. <laughs> okay? GPS, well, you, you six yeah. of them, technically. I mean, those, huh? those missiles are holding six warheads apiece. They're, they're launching. They don't they, all have to come down at the same yeah, time. Yeah, they're hitting That's six the different seasons. It, Nuclear clock, like a, no, we're not, five to, we're not five to midnight anymore. Yeah, The closest we were was right before the Russians came apart in 87, 88. And then we started, we got inside their head and started living rent-free between their ears 
And we just, Ronald Reagan should go down in history as doing the one thing that the Russians couldn't do, which was spend money we didn't have. You know, it, it is interesting to look at it from the perspective that it is yeah. a mental war just as much it as it is a physical war. And it is. the war of the mind is something that is probably the hardest fought war, but sometimes the easiest one. Yeah. You know, getting people to think in in your way, you know. Yeah. So, look, uh, Mark, I would definitely take a moment to thank you so much for being on our podcast. We've reached about our limit on the time frame here. Right on. Um, I definitely want to, uh, you know, tell everybody, look, go follow Anvil Gunsmithing Yay. on YouTube. My, my YouTube channel is Mark Novak right now. I haven't, I'm going to, I'm going to rename it to that. Um, I used to be on another channel. We've moved over now and I'm running and bringing this stuff back and I really appreciate y'all's time. And if you uh, want me back, light uh, light Eric up, and uh, maybe I'll drive back here, or maybe I'll drag him down to Charleston, and we'll go from there. I think that we will come to you for the next batch. Okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna take a moment here to read a little bit of a monologue from one of my favorite films related to the Cold War and related to the whole communist scare, and that uh, is a Stanley Kubrick film by the name of Doctor Strangelove. Okay, so we're gonna end end with this. All right, nice. the survival kit contents check. One, <laughs> I love this. One forty-five automatic, two boxes of ammunition, four days concentrated emergency rations, one drug issue containing antibiotics, morphine, vitamin pills, pep pills, sleeping pills, tranquilizer pills, one miniature combination Russian phrase book and Bible, one hundred dollars in ruples, one hundred dollars in gold, nine packs of chewing gum, one issue of prophylactic. Three lipsticks, one pair of nylon stockings. Shoot, a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with all that stuff. <laughs> all right. I love the southern draw you put on that. Well, uh, <laughs> one, one, issue. Well, I declare. I declare. That is. That was, yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. Mark, thank you for being on our uh, podcast. Thank you, Mark. We will have other guests on. Let us know if you like this format. And, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. It's been great, man. Thank you very much. All right. Bye, guys. We're signing off. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys... Dangerous freedom. Have a good one.